Joanna Lumley's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You may know her for her role as the irrepressible Patsy Stone in the Britcom Absolutely Fabulous. And some of her travel documentaries from British TV are now being distributed in North America, including Joanna Lumley's Greek Odyssey. A preview is posted at athenalearning.com. Joanna, thanks for being with us. Oh, Rick, it's such a pleasure. And I think I was practically born in a suitcase. I was born in Kashmir the year before India gained her independence. And from then, I travelled back and I travelled out to Hong Kong where I lived for a few years and travelled back, then travelled out to Malaysia where we lived for a bit because my father was with the British Army, which was the Indian Army, the British Army in India, and his regiment was the Gurkha Regiment, which is, I don't know whether you've heard of the Gurkhas out in the US, but... I, I have a Gurkha knife. When I went to Nepal, I bought a Gurkha knife yeah. and it's one of my prized well, souvenirs. A cookery, that curved, deadly <laughs> knife. I love it. Now, what is it about the Gurkhas? Who are they, first of all? The Gurkhas are the hillmen of Nepal, and 200 years ago next year, there was a huge skirmish with the, the Gurkha, the, the Nepalese, as they were, fighting the British. And they respected each other so much that the Gurkhas, at the end of the battle, when there were sort of corpses lying all over the place, the leaders of the Nepali army came up to the British and said, we like the way you fight. Um, can we fight for you? And that was it. That was the beginning <laughs> of this extraordinary marriage. They're not part of the Commonwealth. It's their voluntary service every year. That's what they want to do. And they join up, and it's the finest job you can have in Nepal is to belong to, to become a British Gurkha. And my father was an officer with the Gurkhas, yeah. Fearless warriors. Isn't there a famous saying, if a man says he's not afraid of dying, he's either lying or he's a Gurkha? That's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> so they've been really um, much appreciated by the old-school British Empire. And even today, a, a year or two ago, I was in London checking out the construction for the Olympic Stadium there, uh, for the Olympics, yes. and it was all guarded by Gurkhas. By Gurkhas. They are adored over here by all, actually, by the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Everybody's got somebody who has fought with the Gurkhas in the past. and You want them on your side if you're in a war. You do, and uh, they are so frightening that their reputation goes ahead of them like a kind of bow wave, and people go, oh, no, the Gurkhas are coming, quite often just resign and put their hands up in the air. Joanna, by the Gurkhas, you're considered a daughter of Nepal and a, literally a national treasure. They've got some struggles, and you, you empathize with that, and you've helped them. What are their struggles, and, and how have you been involved? The struggles were by some extraordinary anomaly of British law, although a lot of Commonwealth troops, and I, I, I'm sure that your, your listeners understand what that means, which is this great link-up of old countries which used to be in the, in the British Empire, and the empire's long gone, but a lot of the, those countries have remained friends with Britain, and their, their troops serve with us and are serving now in Afghanistan, all over the place. But the Gurkhas are not part of the Commonwealth, and they had a completely different deal. So when they had finished their service, they were booted out of the country, whereas other Commonwealth soldiers were allowed to, they had the right to remain or become British or stay there or work in Britain. And it just seemed wrong that the Gurkhas were being treated differently. So a very small group of us decided to take up the cause, took it to the high courts, fought, 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 and gradually got the country on our side, got the press on our side, got Parliament on our side, and got the laws changed. Wow. So um, the Gurkhas are now treated the same, yeah. Good for you. And every every year we have um, our Remembrance Day is on November mm-hmm. the 11th at 11 o'clock, and it's always the, it's the most solemn occasion practically in the calendar, and it's the Queen comes out of the Cenotaph yeah. to honor all the fallen in, in both the great wars. And while England is Christian, the Cenotaph is very careful not to have any religious symbol on it because it's Absolutely a memorial to right. all so the people who died for the All faiths are represented there, and all the Commonwealth leaders are there, all of mm-hmm. them, and it's it's a terribly moving ceremony, actually. Mm. You suddenly think, you know, it's the old rather sort of 60s hippie thing, Rick, which is, 
I wish we could all live in peace together because when we all are making friends, of course we're all different. Of course we've all mm -hmm. got different cultures and ideas and practices mm -hmm. and standards and histories. But we're all so much the same, you know, if only we could live in peace. Boy, your, your travels have helped uh, remind people of that. It's a beautiful thing. Now, we talked about your, your father being in the British service. Uh, your grandfather actually uh, had an adventure My mother's in, father, in, indeed. in Bhutan. He was a diplomat, and his sort of area where he was, as it were, ambassador to was Tibet, Sikkim, which in those days was an independent country, mm -hmm. not part of India, and Bhutan, which is still an independent country. And the summer months he lived in Tibet, and then it got very, very cold up there on the high plateaus, and he would move down to Gantok, which is in Sikkim. So my mother was brought up there and rode her ponies up in the high hills. I read in 1931 he had to travel all the way to Bhutan to give the king a, a special... Um, a special honor from King George V. Yeah. And now, that was a long journey back then in 1931. It was a long journey. My, my grandmother went with him. My aunt, my mother was at boarding school in England, too young to go. But my aunt went. They took about 100 pack animals. It was a huge diplomatic venture. Three months through the jungles? Not through the jungles. This is midwinter, so it was through quite a lot of it was through the snow. Oh, my goodness. And Bhutan is like, you know, the highest parts of, of Bhutan are high, high, high. They've got mountains of 25,000 feet. And the low, low, low parts are where you grow oranges. So you have a heck of a difference in height and in climate. You retraced that, your grandfather's journey, and what, 65 years later, and you filmed it, and you, you did a documentary film called The Kingdom of the Thunder Dragon. What was that like? And what was your impression That's of That's the Bhutan? name for Bhutan. Oh, it was just a blissful place. I think it's changing quickly nowadays. So again, I would say to anybody who wants to travel, travel now because it's changing. The towns are getting bigger. The hotels are getting chicer, which in many ways is nice, but in many ways it's lovely to see the countries it was. It was a locked-off, hidden kingdom, a vast Himalayan kingdom with great zongs, which are like fortress monasteries planted about the place and tiny villages around the outside, but largely completely empty. It's about the size of Switzerland. Mm. It's got valleys which grow all the medicinal herbs. You can cure yourself from the herbs that you'd pick in the valleys of Bhutan. It's mysterious and friendly and lovely. To this day, I think tourism is quite controlled there, so it's limited who gets in there and so on, but it's opening up That's to tourism. True. And you had, with your family connections, it's amazing, you had dinner with, what, the former queen mother of Bhutan? Yes. Isn't now, that now she had a connection with your grandfather, or her family That's did, right. and they actually, you come back two generations later, what was that like? Just phenomenal. I was so proud, and the warm friendliness they had, because my grandfather was instrumental in keeping Bhutan a separate sovereign nation rather than being annexed into Britain mm -hmm. because he was advising wherever he went, he would say, I think this would work, this wouldn't. And mm. he said, I think it would be sensible to keep Bhutan separate and independent. And they've always been grateful to him for that. But of course, he adored, he, he was a very great linguist. He had 12 or 13 languages. The Bhutanese royal family, oh, it's tremendously complex out there, but some of them were Tibetans. And of course, he knew Tibetans. He was a friend of the 13th Dalai Lama. Wow. And so all these extraordinary stories from a kind of another world, another world, did they did they show off? Did you sit and watch uh, athletic competitions or? Well, we didn't. They didn't do it for us, but we came in on one of their big ceremonies, which was a, like a four-day fair of feasting and people gathering together and religious dances where they wear beautiful masks, animal masks, rather sort of weird, almost hellish. Most of them snarling, and these are supposed to be the faces of demons and gods in the underworld, the other world. And the old people looking at it, I could see in their faces, they truly believed. They were memorizing these extraordinary dancing figures so that when they passed through into the next life that they'd recognize them. It was terribly moving and thrilling. They couldn't have treated us more kindly and courteously. 
I think that honestly, wherever you are in the world, if you have a good sense of humour and are modest and courteous and bother to learn a few words, just thank you, please, good evening, mm. in their language, even if you struggle, they know you're trying, you know? You can make friends so fast. You know, Joanna, it's beautiful to think these cultural treasures and these beautiful rituals survive, and it's also sort of sad to think that they're embattled as the whole world is becoming homogenized. It's great to go see that, and it's great to support that as we can. And Joanna did a TV uh, adventure searching for Noah's Ark. And Joanna, I'm fascinated by Noah's Ark. It's on Mount Ararat, right? Right where Turkey hits Iran. And what did you find? Is there a Noah's Ark? What's going on with that? We had nothing to go on except in the Bible, in the Old Testament. In the Bible, it says, you know, it tells the story of Noah and the flood. And it said the Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. So you go, okay, I don't know anything about anything, but let's take our camera crew and start off just like baby beginners. Where do we go from here? So we went straight out to Mount Ararat and said, is the Ark here? And of course, we met nomadic people there. We met religious people who said, no, it's not here. We met people across the valley who said, this is the shape of the Ark. Look at the shape. This has got timbers on it. These timbers are old. This must be Noah's Ark. And then somebody saying, no, no, that's just a mudslide. That's not the Ark. Was the flood here? No, the flood couldn't have reached here. No, the flood could have reached there. And we could read of the places where in various accounts they say, no, the ark would have rested here. No, no, the ark would have rested here. There were eight people. It's in this village called Eight. It's down here. It's down there. Hmm. All of these things, it's like anything. Anybody who's reporting after an incident, the story gets turned slightly. Somebody embellishes it. Somebody decides to elaborate on it or claim it for their own. So you have to take it with not a pinch of salt, but with a very broad acceptance, you know, and not stamp on people's beliefs, I think. Joanna, when you look at Mount Ararat, it comes out of the land like Mount Fuji or Mount Rainier, and it's one of these sensational mountains. It's it's the tallest mountain in the area. Yes, it's big, and it's quite a tough one to climb because even though people have climbed far higher than that, you've got to take a deep breath before you set off up Mount Ararat, which has, like a lot of great mountains, the easy-peasy look to it. You go, oh, really? I think <laughs> I could stroll up there before lunch. <laughs> Fatal. Very tough. Regardless of if there is a Noah's Ark up there or not, it is a fascinating part of Turkey to explore. It's completely accessible to go to northeastern Turkey, and there you certainly get away from the tourist, and you you enjoy a a very warm welcome. And who knows, you may find a a big piece of uh, beam or or hull that uh, goes back uh, thousands of years. With Noah's name carved on it. (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been exploring some very interesting corners of the world with Patsy Stone, a.k.a. Joanna Lumley. Absolutely fabulous, Joanna. Thanks for traveling with us. Thank you so much, Rick. And um, from Patsy, tune, sweetie. Thank you. That was that was fabulous, Rick. I think, uh, Rick, you're fabulous. Thanks, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and audio tours of Europe's greatest sites and museums in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks, and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.